Peer Review is a series of podcasts designed to shed light on the extraordinary breadth and diversity of talent that sit in the House of Lords. The House of Lords often gets a bad rap because it is thought to be a house of cronies and it is an unelected house. But I hope through these interviews you will see that there is this extraordinary talent, there is a great knowledge and experience, and with that I leave you to draw your own conclusions. My guest today is Norman Lamont, Lord Lamont of Lerwick. And Norman, Lerwick is the Shetland Islands, where you were brought up. Indeed it is. The nearest railway station is Bergen. Oh gosh, that's in Norway. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. it must have been very lonely up there. Or was it sort of? Well, it's not lonely cold? because there are twenty thousand people live there. On it's an archipelago of uh, a large number of different islands. Of course, it is culturally very close to the Scandinavian countries, and uh, indeed, it was part of the Nordic. Uh, I think it was Norway and Denmark owned Shetland at one point. And it was lent to uh, the King of Scotland on, I think, as a wedding present. It was lent. The hope was that they would buy it back later, but it actually was a Scandinavian area for quite a while. Uh, are you the first peer from the Shetland Islands, or have there been a lot of peers from the Shetland Islands? Uh, I'm not aware of anyone who's become a member of the House of Lords from Shetland. There was someone who became. Prime Minister of New Zealand called James Stout. He emigrated from Shetland and uh, went to New Zealand. So I don't know of anyone from Shetland who'd gone to the House of Lords. So there's another first, Norman. Uh, well, <laughs> sort of. I though do have uh, an ancestor, Arthur Anderson, not of the accountancy firm, uh, Arthur Anderson, who uh, founded the P&O company, the shipping company, the world's largest shipping company at one point. And he was press-ganged into the Navy in Shetland, forcibly forced to join the Navy, did that for a period of years, and then was dumped by the Navy in Southampton, walked to London, joined a shipping firm, and founded P&O, which became the world's largest shipping company. And subsequently, he became what I would quite like to have done myself, but didn't. He became MP for Shetland. And were the generations of Lamonts there? Or? No, no, I would. My mother was from Shetland. My mother was a teacher there. My grandfather was just a hill farmer there. My father was the surgeon, the only surgeon really? in Shetland. And he came from Glasgow. Lamont is actually a West of Scotland name. So I, my father always used to say, you're a Highlander and an Islander. Right, uh, which you are. And you then went to school in Scotland on the mainland. Yeah, in uh, Edinburgh. In Edinburgh, and then, of course, on to Cambridge, where you were part of the so-called Cambridge Mafia, where you have enduring friendships, no doubt, with I mean, that group were running the country in many ways. Well, I think that quite often happens, that... Uh, Sometimes people may be at university together and one person decides they are interested in going into politics and other people think, why not? And this was Michael Howard, your well, great friend? the group who uh, I was particularly influenced by would include Michael Howard, who's uh, one of my closest friends, 
Kenneth Clark, who's a good friend, although his views and my <laughs> views are often very different. John Gummer, um, Peter Lilly, Norman Fowler was there just before us. Leon Britton was there just before us, but we knew them all. So I think the name Mafia, I'm not quite sure why it was called the Mafia. F funnily enough, there were a lot of uh, rather talented actors up at Cambridge at the same time as us. And I, I noticed they described themselves as the Cambridge Mafia. Who, who were they? Um, well, people like um, Richard Eyre yeah. and uh, Trevor Nunn and Miriam Margolis. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, amazing. And, of course, not to mention the comedians as well, Yeah, David Frost. Of course, yes. Of course, one of your great friends, Leon Britton, who uh, you were very outspoken about the way he'd been treated in the Carl Dietsch affair. Yeah, well, I thought it was absolutely outrageous. He was accused, I think, of being part of a paedophile ring. And I got particularly incensed because Tom Watson, who was an MP then, now a member of the House of Lords, which I strongly criticised when he was appointed to the House of Lords, really did, in my opinion, everything to stir up Carl Beach and publicly referred to these accusations, which I don't think he should have done. And he described Leon Britton as the nearest thing to evil that one could imagine. Which, of course, he wasn't, and he was totally exonerated. He, he was exonerated because Mr. Beach made all this up. He made it all up, and unfortunately he was exonerated after his death. Yeah, I I had to write Leon's entry in the Dictionary of National Biography, which is a very demanding task because you have to find out everything about somebody going right back to their childhood. In, which is know, what we're doing now, Norman. Well, <laughs> yeah, but I only come from Shetland. Leon came from, I think it was Estonia or Latvia. I had no idea about his childhood in, in the Baltics. So in 1970, you, you decided to go and offer yourselves to the voters of Hull who didn't take you like a duck to water. I have lost it, by a small, <laughs> tiny majority of 23,000 votes. <laughs> to John Prescott. To John it? Prescott, who yeah. uh, I've come to know a very little, and actually I rather like, secretly. But uh, <laughs> he, he wasn't very friendly then, and I remember he wouldn't talk to me, even though he defeated me by 23,000. <laughs> and then Kingston upon Thames, 1972 election, they saw the light and, and you became their MP. From Kingston on Hull to Kingston on Thames. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think in Kingston. You might end up living in Kingston, Jamaica. <laughs> <But laughs> I tried to get Kingston twinned with Kingston, Jamaica, but they weren't very keen. Oh, well, that's a shame. It's a great city. And you were obviously a backbencher for a bit, and then you caught a selector's eye, in other words, Margaret Thatcher, who was Prime Minister at the time. To talk me through... It was, I think it was 79 you got your first job, wasn't it? Yeah, but Mrs. Thatcher very kindly put me on the front bench when she became leader of the opposition. I became a spokesman uh, on finance and taxation, that sort of thing. Um, so really, I owed it all to her. Mm -hmm. I was, first of all, before that, I was PPS, Parliamentary Private Secretary, to Norman St. John Stevens, who was the Must Minister of the Arts and who was under Margaret. And actually, that was when I first met Margaret, when I was working for Norman St. John Stevens, who was a very entertaining person indeed. And you became Minister for Energy and then Trade. 
and then defense. And in 89, I think it was, that you became Chief Secretary of the Treasury. Yeah. And worked with Nigel Lawson, who became your great friend. And you had your moments with Nigel, I think, but <laughs> you, you, you had huge respect for each other. One of the things that you were tasked with was privatization, I think, wasn't that the case? Not, not really. I mean, I was involved in it, all the Treasury ministers, but I think the lead junior minister on privatization was John Moore, actually. Yeah, last no longer with us. He was the last no longer with us, yeah. And you were very pro the privatization program. Yes, very much so. And, you know, was very much involved in things like trying to get mass share ownership of British Gas and all these other companies that were privatized. That was very much part of the agenda, the wider share ownership. Something that I think the Conservative Party today has completely lost sight of. You know, not only is home ownership declined, but actually we, hear, we don't even hear much talk about the need to encourage wider share ownership, to give ordinary people a stake in the country, a sense of what's going on in the companies of the country. And when Nigel was sacked or resigned, you were working for him in the Treasury. Yeah. And what was the sort of conversation that you had between the two of you at the time? Well, when I heard that Nigel was intending to resign, I was absolutely shocked because I had huge admiration for him. I thought he'd achieved great things. I didn't realize that he'd had this great tension with Mrs. Thatcher over Sir Alan Walters, her economic advisor, going around the boardrooms of the city, talking down what Nigel was doing. And Nigel had, I think, understandably said to Margaret, this has got to stop because you can't have someone from your office criticizing me publicly or semi-publicly. But Nigel kept things like that very much to himself. And the first I knew about it was when I mean, there were some stories in papers, but the first time I had confirmation of it was really when I learned he was intending to resign. And I, I wrote a letter to him urging him. I went to see him urging him not to resign. But alas, he was absolutely determined. I think possibly Nigel had been chancellor for quite a while then. And I think in a way he was quite happy to get out. Yeah, but of course he'd achieved this incredible tax reduction and tax reform, which you were part of. I mean, that mustn't be a very exciting time. Yeah, well, Nigel's, we sort of all yearn for it now. Yeah, Nigel's philosophy, which the Conservative Party has adopted or did adopt, was to have fewer reliefs but lower rates of taxation. So uh, sometimes people weren't. Uh, pleased with half of the, the deal, but you know you would get various tax reliefs phased out, but the basic rate of this or that would come down. And a simplified tax yes. system, which of course yes. is now so complicated. You then worked for John Major, uh, and of course were around when Margaret Thatcher had her Caesarian moment, or Julius Caesar moment, shall we say. D did you have a direct conversation with her on that subject? Yes. Um, I, I did. That was after the first ballot where she was leading Heseltine. But it was obvious to me that she was going to lose on the next round. I, I mean, this may be disputed by people, but first of all, William Hague 
who was then my PPS, brought me a list of about 12 to 15 people who had voted for Margaret, but said, you can't have a prime minister who has this proportion of a political party voting against her leadership, and I will not vote for her a second time. That was what these people... And another person, uh, Michael Joplik, a former chief whip, came to me with another list and said exactly the same. You know, so I knew for certain that people who had voted for her were not going to vote for her the second time because they just thought the public image of a person who's had you know, over 40% of her party voting against her in Parliament makes her position unviable. And I and a number of members of the Cabinet uh, were asked to see her and asked our opinion individually. What I You said, went in individually? You went individually. And what I said to her was exactly what I've just said to you, that I thought she would lose. I said I thought it was in her interest to stand down. But I said, if you disagree with me, I will not say a word about this conversation outside this room, and I will campaign for you, but I think you'll lose. Mm. And if you look back on her legacy now, I mean, you're a huge fan, I think, aren't you? John Major decided to run. He asked you to run his campaign. Well, sort of. <laughs> it's actually quite a funny story. Um, there was no campaign manager initially uh, when he was running. And you know, a group of us who were supporting him used to meet and do all the things that a campaign team would, You know, looking at the list of pledges we'd got, who were floaters, who were doubtful, doing all And this all went on for several days. But... After a while, I think it was Richard Ryder and a few people came to see me and they said, look, this campaign is in chaos. Do you think we, we could please have a manager? Call for Norman. Will you, will you be a man, the manager of this campaign? Of course, they were actually doing most of the work, but I agreed to be the so-called campaign manager. And your reward, of course, when he It was won. not a reward. <laughs> it was to be made chancellor. Thank you very much. I can honestly say I never asked for anything. I never discussed anything with John Major. I had worked very closely with John Major because, well, he was Chancellor. I was Chief Secretary. Mm. Well, it was a natural progression for you to be Chancellor. Well, I'd gone from Financial Secretary to Chief Secretary. Yeah. But it was another step up that ladder. And that was in 1990 when you inherited sort of all sorts of trade wins backwards and forwards all sorts of trade wins well winds of of change uh, backwards and forwards largely relating to europe and of course the recession that we were in and you had your hands full what were the, what, looking back on it what were the sort of major challenges well sorry excuse the pun major challenges that you had during that time when i became chancellor yeah well the, the day i became chancellor uh, inflation was nearly 11%. And although it wasn't clear, um, there was a fear that we were going into recession. And we were in the ERM. John Major had joined the ERM, which severely constrained our ability to lower interest rates. Did John Major discuss that widely when you went into the ERM? No, I think I knew about it the day before it was publicly announced. So I, I played no part in the decision, and 
So who did rather, his, rather who, ironic because the man who in the public's mind is most associated with that is me. Um, and so the, the ERM, just to explain, is the European exchange rate mechanism, which pinned our currency to, to a basket of European, European currencies, currencies. Yeah. strongly supported by Nigel Lawson, let me say. And I was asked in the House of Commons by Giles Radice, a backbench Labour MP, why I hadn't resigned with Nigel. And it's ironic, I now think, I've replied because I don't believe in joining the ERM. And then <laughs> not very long afterwards, I found myself administering the ERM. But the, the, so John Major didn't discuss the ERM with his key financial ally. He didn't discuss it with me. I think he, I think he asked me, would you be opposed to it the day before it was announced? And I gave a rather non-committal answer. Um, so you inherited the ERM. Well, I inherited the ERM, but I inherited a high inflationary situation with an economy, although I didn't necessarily know this at the time, that was heading into recession. The ERM also did actually deal with a problem with inf of inflation decisively. I mean, the day I became chancellor, as I think I said, inflation was nearly 11%. Mm. After I left being chancellor, inflation was not far from 2%. And the country was booming. But, you know, you compare that now, we've got inflation of double figures and we can't get it down. This, I mean, the reason that Nigel wanted to join the ERM was in order to counter inflation. He didn't believe in it as a step towards a single currency. He didn't believe in the euro. He was opposed to the euro. But he did believe that if you linked your currency to that of a strong currency that was very disinflationary, like the Deutschmark, your inflation rate would in the end converge with that of Germany. And in that sense, the ERM actually succeeded economically. It was a political disaster, but economically, it succeeded in that. Well, as I said to you earlier, it was obviously a torrid time because for you personally, there was quite a lot of attacks, uh, erroneous and really nasty things about you in, in the sort of media that you'd come out of an off license or you had a rental thing. That must have been really unattractive because none of them were proven. They were all total rubbish, weren't they? Well, there were a lot of stories that were largely invented and it was all very mysterious to how they came and why they were put there and who put them there. But uh, I think that sort of thing has become more commonplace now. But I think that was one of the points when things in the media started to get uh, rather less pleasant than they had been. But how, how do you cope with those sort of things? You know, you, you're under intense pressure. How do you personally cope? Not how, you know, you're under intense pressure work-wise with the economy going all over the place. You've got nasty, salacious stuff being thrown in, in your direction. How, how do you sort of deal with those sort of things? Well, I, I regarded it all just as, as, as rubbish and uh, irrelevant. I mean, I remember once being in Brussels, where I'd been holding talks with Monsieur Delors about the Maastricht <laughs> Treaty and what we should do with the Maastricht Treaty. And all the people at the press conference wanted to ask me about was whether I'd bought a, bought a bottle of wine in the <laughs> rather seedy area of Paddington. I mean, I just, I mean, I was partly at fault letting it run so long because the story was completely invented but i thought it didn't matter it was such rubbish 
Um, and it was only after it run for about a week, I discovered a receipt in my pocket that showed my bottle of wine had been bought. So my bottle of wine had been bought somewhere, not where the papers were saying I'd bought it. And I mean, I couldn't remember where I'd bought this bottle, <laughs> bottle of wine. So your chancellor being... I mean, let me just say about the papers. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think the important thing in a job like that is to do what's right. And, you know, the fact that people would misrepresent what one was doing, one just had to ignore the, the criticism. I, I'm always amazed newspapers get, can get very self-important themselves. I remember once I was asked, exactly what you've asked me, how I cope with the newspapers. And I said, oh, well, I don't read them very much. And uh, I remember immediately the editor of one very prominent national paper complained to the prime minister that I didn't read the newspapers. <laughs> now you're an avid reader. I know that. You know everything's going on in the papers. But going back to being chancellor, it came to an end quite abruptly. There was a big row. It was, again, relating to the ERM and Black Wednesday. Well, no, I think what happened, um, John Major asked me, you know, there was a lot of discontent about the recession, the effects of high rates of interest, you know, all this newspaper scurrilous non-stories didn't help. And, you know, backbenchers didn't much like it. And John asked me if I would um, move to another job in the cabinet. And... I said, you know, I quite understood if uh, he felt a change was necessary, but I didn't want another job in the cabinet. And uh, I, you know, it was his prerogative, and I would rather not have another job. I'd rather leave. And so I left. And uh, I'd just delivered the budget in 1993, which was by miles the most unpopular of my three budgets, but it was also by miles the best because actually the public finances after the recession needed putting in order. And I think the combination of the 1993 budget, which was fiscal consolidation, reducing the deficit, plus the fact that we got our inflation level even below that of Germany's, meant that we left Labour with a golden inheritance. And the the consequences of that lasted for many, many years. And I regret to say the major beneficiary was Gordon Brown. Mm. Yeah, that's absolutely true. But coming back to the exit from the ERM and oh, yes. Black Wednesday, you know, what was that? That must have been an incredible time. Well, yes. Um, people often ask, what did I feel? I sort of can't answer that question. I didn't run around asking myself, what am I feeling you know, about this? Um, I just felt one has a job to do. This is a, a crisis. The government's policy is uh, obviously undergoing huge stress. I wanted, I had actually, before Black Wednesday, twice suggested to John Major that we suspend our membership because I, I felt it was becoming inappropriate as a policy because it was too tight, was causing too much unemployment. And uh, we'd better if we suspended. I didn't say withdraw, suspended for some months or period until German interest rates came down again. But he, you know, he was the the, the father of this policy, and he didn't want to do that. And I accepted that. But because of that, 
when we were forced out of the ERM, as people put it, forced out, it's not quite accurate, but I, in a way, felt a degree of relief because I felt we could get our interest rates down. They'd done the, the high rates had done their task. I had a tool which had disintegrated in my hands, and we were going to be in a stronger position. And although all this stuff about me singing in the bath was a little bit exaggerated, um, the press, I mean, it's interesting. The oh, press, you were reported to have been singing in the bath when we left the ERA. Yes, yeah. it wasn't quite true. Um, but uh, the press had, I think, discerned accurately that I thought this might all turn out for the best, and it did turn out for the best. Yeah. And you, you've held a strong belief, and in fact was the early advocate for not going into the single currency. I, I was a, strongly opposed to joining the single currency, and uh, under John Major, I negotiated the opt-out from the single currency, and I was absolutely determined that there would be no small print that could force us in or try to influence our economic policy to make it more likely that we would have to join. It was quite interesting because many of the Eurosceptics on the back bench were concerned about that I didn't believe the opt-out would work and they believed we'd be forced to join the single currency, but the opt-out did work. But if I may say so, not only did I, was I an early opponent of joining the euro, I actually was also, I think I made the speech in 1994, I did raise the prospect that we might have to leave the EU as a whole, be, actually have a Brexit, because I felt, and I had spent the whole of my time as Chancellor negotiating with the EU, I felt we were moving in a direction where we had to choose between being a self-governing country or being governed by an increasingly integrated Europe. Mm. And um, you you carried on that campaign till the uh, vote actually happened, which was successful in, in, as a Brexiteer. So looking back from seeing the history that you went through and now the economic position we're in, uh, one of the things that is different from your day, of course, was the Bank of England was not independent or not as independent as it is now. I mean, looking back on, on, on that, do you, do you think we're in for the same sort of period of great instability and recession and uh, not being able to control where we are? You were able to control it better in those days, but do you think you were able to control it now? Well, I don't think that's inevitable. I think the at the t time that we're talking, I think the latest inflation figures are rather alarming, very alarming, actually. Um, and I think, I don't like to criticize the Bank of England because that may compromise its independence, but I think its credibility is at risk because Britain's inflation rate is something of an outlier compared with continental Europe and especially compared with the United States. And it's very important that both the government and the Bank of England sound determined to control inflation and we have to get, I mean, people talk about growth, so they've suddenly discovered some miraculous cure. We can't have growth until we've got inflation down. Um, and it, you know, it's a common misunderstanding. People think that having fiscal responsibility, a low budget deficit or low inflation is incompatible with growth. They're essential first to getting growth. We've got to get that done first. And mm. I think that Rishi Sunak understands that very well. 
you know, he's inherited a very, very difficult uh, position. But uh, I think we could see inflation still by the end of this year. It's still possible for it to get down to 5%. It's not guaranteed. It looks less likely than it did, but it is still possible. And I think if the bank follows through, we could get inflation further down. It's absolutely essential. So inflation, in your view, is, is, the, is the enemy? Well, inflation is the first enemy. Yeah, I mean, that's I, what I mean. Sorry, I, I do, of course I agree with people who feel taxes are too high, um, and we ought to get them down. But I don't think you can cut taxes when you have a very tight labour market, three point eight percent unemployment, mm. and it's got a million vacancies as well. I, I don't think in th- that environment you can cut taxes without putting inflation further up. Well, this is the wonderful thing about the Lords is that you have this, you know, we have the, all, all you people who've got so much experience, you know, can give of their, your view and hopefully do give of your view. And I think that's the incredible thing about the Lords and why it's so interesting. Anyway, you became a peer in 98. Your PPS, former PPS, made you a peer, I think. He did, yes. <laughs> William Hague. Uh, and I, I think it remains really to sort of go back to that relationship with Major. Is that... Is that um, better now, or is it? Oh yes. No, I mean I do. Uh, we see each other perhaps once a year, something like that. Yeah, because it, it was quite a big fallout, wasn't it? Um, well, it was a period where I read in newspapers we didn't talk to each other. Something in that, but uh, <laughs> but uh, we do now. Good. Yeah, but I always say, grass grows over the battlefield. Yeah, <laughs> that's a very good way to end. Norman, thank you so much for sparing the time. As always, it's brilliant listening to you and um, I wish you all the best in the next few years because the country's going to need your advice and experience. Thank you very much.